Welcome to Maximize Your Influence, your resource for the top persuasion, influence, and negotiation techniques that will help you maximize your success in life and business. And now, here are your hosts, Kurt Mortensen and Steve Olson. Welcome to another episode of Maximize Your Influence. I'm Steve Olson. I have my compadre, Kurt Mortensen, here with me as usual. He is locked and loaded and ready to completely blow your minds. That's probably not the best verbal packaging, is it? <laughs> probably not, but if I'm your compadre, I say hola to everyone and uh, welcome to our podcast. That's right. That's right. If you can't tell, we're making a goal to offend our Hispanic listeners today. <laughs> with our poor Spanish. As we continue our never-ending quest. <laughs> to offend every demographic uh, that listens to the show. So thank you. If you're still listening, uh, send us an email to maximizeyourinfluence at gmail.com and let us know what demographic you are so we can offend you. Yeah, please do. we got to get them all across the board. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so it's kind of colder and rainier here in Utah today, but uh, we have nothing to complain about. Uh, the people in Michigan and the Northeast are just getting absolutely pummeled still. I'm glad I don't live there right now. Get it hammered. Yeah, I did my years back east, and that is pure cold. And I've got that California blood in me, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thin that blood. That is cold. But wait, you've got news. You had uh, years this week. Is that not true? Oh, yeah, yeah. I put I notched another year in the books. That's right. That's right. Did big birthday party weekend, lots of parties, lots of ribeyes, you fatty foods. <laughs> well, we got to talk about food sometime during the podcast. I did eat a ton of fatty food yesterday. You know, I went out for my to my favorite Mexican place for lunch, and then we went out and got crab for for dinner, and saw a movie, and I got a new toy for my birthday that I took to the shooting range, which was quite fun. I, I oh, now to. you offended the other another demographic. Yeah, of course I did. Of course I did. <laughs> So yes, I own a firearm and I like to shoot it. So if you don't like that, I'm, I apologize to you. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it was a good one. We got another another birthday in the books, and you know, I, I got to tell you what I'm more excited about is the new baby. He's sleeping through the night, so life oh. is just so much better now. Yeah, everyone's happier, less stress, sleeping through the night. There's an amazing thing what sleep does, or or. It's amazing what lack of sleep does to everyone's attitude and energy and just general demeanor. Oh, man. It's it's just amazing how much better I feel. And the funny thing is, this is the law of contrast, which we've talked about on the show. You know, when you can contrast two things, you can feel differently than you would under normal circumstances. I'm still getting significantly less sleep than I did before the baby came. <laughs> but but I feel like a million bucks <laughs> because <laughs> of that contrast of, you know, where you felt like you were in... Guantanamo Bay getting waking up every couple hours to be interrogated only it was to be cried at uh, that would case. be a lot of contrast you're happy with five hours when you were only getting two before uh, yeah yeah exactly so that's what's going on over here what's going on with you ah uh, not much just working on some new projects and uh, getting ready to go to Chicago to get cold again yeah do a two-day seminar out there and just enjoying the warmer weather on the West Coast, getting some rain, which is odd for February, but hey, we'll take it. You got to go over to Geno's East of Chicago and get a deep yeah. dish. Yeah. The Chicago's got some great food out there and some great sandwich places, pizza places, great steak places. Uh, they like their food out there, especially hey. in the winter when it's so cold. There's really not much else to do. There's not. <laughs> there's not. But 
you know, when we lived in Indianapolis for a while, you know, it was common to go up to Chicago for the day and hang out. And there's that big, big debate about who has the better pizza, Gino's east of Chicago or Giordano's. I got to say, listeners, I'm firmly in the camp of Gino's. If you have a bone to pick with me there, just email us. I, I like Gino's a, a lot better. So. Well, you got that in Philadelphia with the best cheesesteak, and you've got that in isn't it New York the Ray's original Ray's pizza? You got to go back and forth. Who has the best pizza? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but right. Those right. are good debates because you have to go to both, and they're all they're all good. It's good food. We watched that movie Elf over Christmas, and that's what Santa Claus and Elf tells Will Ferrell because Will Ferrell's going to walk to New York, and he goes, "And you're going to go to Ray's Pizza, and there's a bunch of different ones, but the real one's on Eleventh." <laughs> <laughs> See, there you go. Got to get the pizza. It's supposed to be food time. We're talking about food again. We're always talking about food. I know. We should do a podcast on do food. A food podcast. Yeah, Gino's better be sending me a pizza. That's what they better do. <laughs> well, I know the people, uh, our people, our <laughs> our listeners, whatever you want to call you, people. <laughs> you guys uh, don't tune in to listen to us talking about food too long. You want to get something productive out of this, and we've got some good information for you today including what I feel like is one of the better blunders that we've ever committed. Kurt and I actually did this one together and learned this Joint blunder, is that what we're going to call it? Yeah, joint blunder today. And we're going to be talking about presentation skills. And you've all been in presentations before that were just absolutely horrific and gut-wrenching because they were boring or the person had bad habits. Presentation is an art form. It is a science to a large degree, and, and some people just have it. Other people need to learn it. We're going to get into that today. But first, we have an article that we want to talk about that I think is pretty solid stuff. You ready for this, Kurt? Yeah, give it to me. Harvard Business Review again. A very good article on who can you trust, right? And I know listeners, many of you have been in that situation before. You've been considering whether you should partner with somebody, do business with them, take them on as a vendor or as a supplier or, or whatever. And you're placing a certain level of trust in that person when you make that decision. The only thing is, is you couldn't possibly know everything there is to know about them. These decisions are, are made in a much shorter period of time. And you have to go with some general principles. And it's a long article, but he gave a few recurring themes that I just wanted to throw out there. See what you think, Kurt. And like I said, send us your feedback, everybody, to maximize your influence at gmail.com. So you're looking at going into a partnership. And I know this happened to us once, Kurt. A guy told us that he was going to need a certain quantity of product. It was a large quantity. So like two gullible suckers, we ordered it. And did the deal ever get off the ground? Don't think so. It did not. And it cost us a lot of money because we placed a significant amount of trust in a guy that, you know, he talked well, he talked a big game, but we didn't really know him. And you know, going back now, there's certainly plenty of things I would have done differently in that deal. But when we're considering who to trust, he gives three points that uh, I thought were pretty interesting. Number one, power does corrupt. We, we've all heard that saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? And he cited a couple of studies, and this is by a gentleman named David uh, Distento. Distento. Yeah, I don't know how to say it. I'll put the link on the blog, and uh, you can get you can read it for yourself uh, from somebody who's more educated than I am. Mm. Power does corrupt. He cites various studies that show that the more power somebody gets, the less integrity that they tend to have. It's kind of human nature to 
to do that. I don't know. Has that been your experience, Kurt? Yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> that's how it works. That's how it works. A la Vladimir Putin right now invading Ukraine, right? Yeah, I mean, any, even politicians in the United States, just once they get elected that power, they'll do anything to stay in power, and it, it does. It does corrupt. So the moral of the story in this instance, if you're considering doing business or partnering or, or working with somebody who does have a significant amount of power, if you're just going to play the numbers here, you would have to know that the odds are they have less integrity than the average person. We're not saying that people with great power are always thieves or crooks or whatever. Buyer beware. Watch out for that. Uh, number two, this one, wow, I've seen this one so many times. Confidence often masks incompetence. Have you ever seen that? Somebody talking a really big game and this and that and the other, and they just really turn out to be completely full of it? Yeah, when people are bold and have that confidence, it does fool people for the short term, but then long term you think and, and you realize that they don't know what they're doing. It's just all a big cover-up. I had a meeting with an attorney yesterday uh, regarding some uh, business planning that I'm doing. This guy happens to be a franchise attorney. And I found him to be the opposite of this principle. He was reserved. He had that ethical confidence about him where I could tell that he knew what he was talking about. He had been doing this for a long time, but he didn't feel the need. He didn't have to oversell it. You could tell that the knowledge he was giving me, the legal advice he was giving me, was based on a long track record in the legal profession. I had a guy I did business with years ago that uh, I would rely on him for certain things that he had to perform in our business arrangement. And every time we'd bring in a third party, oh, I got this guy, he's the best in the world. Oh, my team is the absolute best in the world. Uh, he would always say that. It was just kind of peacocking, if you will, right? And uh, as time went by and I got to know him more, I found out that often these people didn't even exist. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in many cases, if they did exist, they were, they were nothing special. They were, in many cases, very incompetent, and the chief incompetent was leading everybody. So I don't know. Any thoughts on that? You talk about lawyers. I have plenty of experiences watching negotiations, going to different things with lawyers. And at first, it's like they're playing the dumb cop or they're play, doing the Columbo thing and they're trying to do this, and you're waiting for the hammer to drop to where they're going to come around and bring it all together, and they never do. <laughs> yep, yep. And there's, there's no competence there. I'm thinking, wow, these people are getting paid. <laughs> oh, they are getting paid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's because the end result is some legal advice, not a resolution to the case. That's the problem I've just got with attorneys. I wish you could pay them on commission. Well, I guess a lot of them are. I mean, the, the injury guys and, and those people. But, uh, yeah, some of them are. The good, a lot of the good ones are. or They're good paid by what they do, and, and others are just paid by the hour for their advice. And a lot of times you can take it and leave it, and a lot of times it's so bad you have to leave it. I mean, a lot of lawyers are, are akin to in the medical profession when they have exploratory surgery, right? <laughs> you know you're in bad shape when you get to have exploratory surgery. The doctor is going to cut you open, wander around. You're going to get billed. and, and Take what, a test drive. The bill's going to come. That is the one guaranteed thing. So did we just offend the lawyers? Can we add them to the list? No, they don't have the right to be offended. They know that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Check it. Yeah, I mean, lawyers and congressmen, uh, politicians, used car guys. I mean, if we come at you, you just have to take it. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. I think everybody will agree with me on that one. All right. So the final point from the article, and I think this is true. 
<laughs> I've found that women are often, more often than not, better at it than men, which is it's okay to trust your gut. When you're looking at who you can trust, it's okay to trust your gut. There are plenty of studies that show that we have this ability to process information on the micro level. It speaks to our subconscious mind, and we get a feeling. We get an intuition. Or is that all a bunch of hocus-pocus? What do you think? No, I believe that 100%. People can learn to listen to that intuition, to listen to their gut, to understand their subconscious mind. And that's a big part of persuasion and influence. And that was the, the biggest shocker to me when I was doing research for with charisma and charismatic leaders and CEOs, how often in, intuition came into the equation as far as listening to that inner voice, that instinct, that urge. It's a powerful thing. A lot of people don't talk about it because they think it's that woo-woo, oh, the inner voice, but it's there. And it's very powerful. It can save you a lot of time and money. Yeah, yeah, very true. Well, there, there you go, everybody. Good article by uh, Harvard Business Review from the guy whose name I clearly cannot pronounce. I will link to it on the blog so that you can uh, take a look at it for yourself. But we want to get into a little bit of information on presentation skills now. And I've found that it's always helpful to define what that means so we know what we're talking about. Some people might automatically associate presentation skills with you're on a stage at a big hotel ballroom or something with uh, 300 people listening to you. And that's not necessarily the case. Presentation skills could be to one person, but it's when you have the stage, you've got the floor. Somebody said, you have my attention, whether it's for five minutes or for a couple hours. And they're expecting you to more or less put on the dog and pony show. Impress me. I mean, is that a, an accurate definition of a presentation? Oh, absolutely. It could be on the stage. It could be one-on-one. -on -one. It could be in the boardroom. It could be over the phone. These are all presentations. It could be a webinar, one-on-one -on -one or a group of people. These are presentations that you need to give. And you have to ask yourself, when you do a presentation, are you just presenting or are you persuasive? Are you informing or are you influencing? Are you, are you just communicating or are you truly convincing? Because anybody can go through some PowerPoint and people pretend that they're listening but if you haven't grabbed their hearts and their souls, if you haven't persuaded them, if they need to think about it, if you didn't change their mind, you've wasted everybody's time. Yeah. I have a, an interesting question for you. I want to see what you think about this. And this is a little bit out of left field because we didn't talk about it in our show prep, which I know everybody, you're very surprised. We actually do do show <laughs> prep. So come on, at least 30 seconds, right? Yeah. Yeah. 30 seconds or so of show prep. Yeah. Yeah. We're really building the value here, but I've heard many times, and one of the proponents of this is a very famous and very successful consultant for speakers, Mr. Dan Kennedy, who we both admire. I think he's amazing. But Dan Kennedy would be the first to tell you that when you're going to be presenting, you've got to decide, am I going to educate or am I going to sell? And they are two completely different things. If you're going to sit up there and educate, you're not going to sell. People are going to, they're going to do what you call, Kurt, scratching the itch, right? Mm -hmm. The education is going to fulfill them. They don't feel the need to get out the credit card or make a decision. I would tend to disagree slightly with Dan Kennedy on this. I know that, for example, in my business, my clients are very educated people. They need to feel like they're getting unbiased, good information, and I found that actually it builds trust. I might make the initial sale slower. It'll take more time, but I do make many more of them, and it becomes easier because the trust level is built up. I mean, what do you think? Are the two 
totally exclusive from each other? Or No, I think they can go hand in hand. I mean, a lot of salespeople become unpaid consultants to where they're just educating and educating, they, and the companies get all the information they need and to go with another product or another service and never go with the person. So you have to be careful there. Yeah. But if you don't give them any good information, you don't prove your competence, then they're not going to do business with you anyway. You know, I love what Dan says. He says, when you're doing a training or when you're doing a sales presentation or any type of presentation, he just says, tell them what to do, but not how to do it. So... A lot of the times the how to do it can be what you're selling or your product or your service, but there does need to be some meat. I like the example of take to a restaurant. You don't want to fill them up to where they don't want anything, but give them a bite of a little bit of everything so they're still hungry. They want more. You've proved your worth. They know it tastes good. They know they want more instead of leaving full and not wanting anything else or they need to think about it or come back later or process the information or talk to the spouse versus really getting a piece of the pie or a piece of the meal. So you're going to give them the appetizer. And I we're making the assumption here, everybody, that you're not an anesthesiologist going to the annual board anesthesiologist meeting, educating them on the latest techniques, right? That's purely an educational event. The goal of your presentation is to create action. It may not necessarily be to get money in exchange for a product, but it might be a buy into something. It's a persuasive presentation. And Which is very different than that education of the data. But I like to think almost every presentation should have some element of persuasion or call to action in it, regardless of what you're doing, because you're not just up there for fun. You, you probably want your audience to do something or to think differently or to or use the new drug if you're a doctor doing that type of presentation. Yeah. yeah you're right, though. I mean, every presentation should have some kind of persuasive element to it. I mean, or otherwise, why are they there? I mean, who wants... I guess I went to see a stand-up comedian the other day, and you know that, that's the one where it didn't. But if you're going to get up there and educate somebody, I think inherently you're trying to educate them that this is the way things are, and you need to believe this, right? That's what I do. You know, I do a lot of training with presentation skills and help people out. And I tell people, after a presentation, people come up and say, that was great, thank you, that was nice, and they didn't buy anything or they didn't do anything or they didn't ask for your business card. Okay, you've blown that presentation. Who cares if it was nice? Who cares if you got a standing ovation? If nobody bought your product, if nobody wants to do business with you, if nobody changed their mind, everyone just wasted their time. Yeah, well, you can't tell your mortgage company, I don't have any money for you this month, but the people all really liked my presentation. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> good presentation. Still have to pay, but hey, good presentation. Yeah, can I mail that in? Can I mail in their nice <laughs> words of encouragement? That's right. <laughs> you got to create action. So... I think the we've already technically started on this, but what advice would you give to the listeners when it comes to, to preparing for the presentation? Because it seems to me that that's you know, 50% of the issue here. Well, that's a huge blunder, too, if you want to think about it. People are so prepared about the content or preparing their PowerPoint or understanding the material, which is a big part of it, that they never get to the delivery part. They never practice the delivery. They never go through the motion to really how to present it over the phone or face-to-face -face or over a webinar. Content's important, but I would rather see some passion, some emotion, and maybe a few more mistakes to make it real than a presentation that is so dry and not persuasive. And a couple factors here. First of all, a lot of presenters don't realize that when you're sitting down to do a persuasive presentation, you do your call to action first. Now, you don't deliver it first, but you sit down, okay, what is my purpose here? What is my call to action? What do I want my audience to do? Create that first, 
And then you build your whole presentation around that. If you can just do that, it'll make a huge difference because everything is pointing to what you want them to do. Then you go, okay, I've got 30 seconds to grab their attention to do the proverbial what's in it for me, why should I care to, to identify those needs, those wants, to tap into those emotional reasons. Then you can start building there and do the what's in it for me and find your statistics and your studies and what you need to do and go through your presentation. But if you can create that call to action first and build your whole presentation around it, because one of the complaints that a lot of people have is that when someone goes into their close or their call to action, their demeanor changes. They're like, whoa, where's Mr. People person? Because the closer, the salesperson, the persuader gets all nervous. Oh, this is it. This is where I'm going to ask for the money, ask for the business, ask them to donate to the charity. They get all freaky inside, I guess is a scientific term. <laughs> their demeanor changes and it freaks people out. They're like, where's the whole person? And the reason I say that up is that you are persuading the whole time. And when you get to your call to action, you should be excited. You're getting to that point. That's why you're there. Your demeanor shouldn't change. You shouldn't get nervous. And it shouldn't surprise your prospect that you're asking them to do something. <laughs> if you get to that close, that call to action, and you surprise them that you're going to ask for money, uh, you've blown it along the way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you never pre-qualified them in the first place. Uh, Pre-qualifying, you never grabbed their attention. You were just vomiting all the details. There are so many things that went wrong during that presentation because, yeah, when you get to that point, you should be excited. This is the moment of truth. This is you as yeah. a persuader. You're going to ask for the money. Your demeanor shouldn't change, and, and it's not going to shock them. If it's shocking to them, you got to back up and look at the whole structure of your presentation. Right, right. Well, that's good advice. So you've said many times, I've read this in your book before, that small commitments lead to larger commitments. I, so I think what you're basically saying is, what is the call to action? What's that main commitment that you want them to make and follow through with? And then you can break that up, right? Yeah. Are there things they need to do or are there principles they need to be convinced of and believe along the way? And so you just back that out. You build credibility at the beginning of the presentation you give stories and facts and examples throughout that achieve those benchmarks, those small commitments that eventually, if somebody has sat through that presentation, increase the likelihood that they will make and keep the final commitment or call to action, correct? Correct. And start with those small things. It could be get everyone to raise their hand or to say yes or to write this down. You're persuading them. It's such an easy thing. Go ahead, write that down. Could you get a piece of paper out? Can I borrow this? Can you, if it's a large audience, everyone raise your hand, say yes for me. What do you think about this? Those are small commitments. And so the more yeses you get along the way, as we've talked about with foot in the door technique and getting those small commitments, when you finally ask them for a credit card or for the money for the due business or to donate time for a charity or to help out with the committee, whatever it is, it's not that big of a deal because you've got 20 yeses before that, and now the next yes is easy. That's why you've designed your whole presentation that way. Yeah, yeah, well, it makes sense. It makes sense. Anything else you would say when it comes to, to preparing? Because it's apparent to me now, Kurt, we're going to have to do another episode on this as far as the actual presentation and giving it body language, inflection. But when somebody's actually preparing it, what else would you tell them? What's the takeaway you know, that people can apply immediately? Well, the takeaway is, first of all, presentation skills is now ranked higher in job and, and upward mobility in corporations and writing skills. You have to learn to love to present. You have to get past the fear. And it's okay to have that a little fear. And you've heard me say this before, to have those butterflies, but you have to get those butterflies to fly in formation. 
You have to be prepared to give this presentation. You have to be excited to give this presentation. You have to change your whole thought process that this is where it all hits the road as far as being excited to do the presentation, where you're making your money, where you're convincing people. So people get so stuck in the preparation mode. They get so stuck in getting all the slides and the handouts that they don't stand up and practice it. They don't get in front of a mirror. They don't work on their gestures and their presentation skills to where they just focus on the content. And if you're doing the content, it's just a data dump. It's not exciting. It's not emotional. You're not going to convince any mind. You're not going to touch any hearts. You are just going to do a standard, boring presentation that's strictly informational, and you're not going to recruit the hearts and minds of your audience. That's great. I think then the takeaway is practice it. Stand in front of the mirror, practice it. You're going to see the bugs. You're going to be able to work them out. Practice it to people who uh, you know, have no reason to be, I don't want to say dishonest, but you know they want to be totally upfront with you. I, I remember many years, and you'll remember this too, Kurt, many birthdays ago, I was going to do some presenting for you in California to business owners. And I was pretty young at the time, and presenting was kind of something that I already had some natural skill to it, but it was extremely raw. And I memorized a speech that was about an hour that you gave me. And I had to give that thing to you a couple of times a day for a few months. I got so tired of that stupid speech. <laughs> I can still play it in my head if I want to. But it was interesting, all the components that, that you helped me work through. Everybody, a lot of times, Kurt would just sit there with his eyes closed while I gave the speech. Because he was listening for the inflection. And then other times, he would just focus narrowly to totally just watch the body language. That presentation coaching that I went through made me an exponentially better presenter. Those are skills that I still use today. I've been able to get jobs. I've been able to get real estate deals. I've been able to get other business partnerships launched because I can present. And, and as I've owned businesses throughout the years and I've interviewed people to hire, the ones that can come in there and present themselves to me with confidence and competence they're the ones that get the jobs, even though somebody might read better on a resume. And I could be making a mistake in the long-term running of my business there. But what I'm telling you is the perspective of somebody making a decision of, here's who I'm going to go with. Here's who I'm going to put my chips behind. It's all about those presentation skills. You're right on. And people don't realize it is such an important part of charisma, of influence, of your ability to sell yourself to others is how you present yourself, whether it be a job interview or one-on-one. -on -one, it could be getting in the boardroom. It is critical. People just focus on the informing and the, can, the communicating that they don't really understand the aspects of putting a persuasive presentation together. There's a certain formula there that people can follow. And once they have that, the sky's the limit. The sky's yeah. the limit. It makes a huge difference. In fact, Jim Rohn, one of my early mentors, said, hey, when I learned to communicate and present, I went from six digits to seven digits. And that makes the big difference for people. Agreed. Agreed. So if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have a pitch or a presentation that you give on a semi-regular basis, whether it's to people in your company or whatever. Record that thing. Listen to yourself. Because I've fallen into this habit before, too. I think, oh, I'm just going to give the pitch. I know what I'm doing, right? Check in with yourself. Record it. Listen. You're going to find things in there. You're going, oh, that didn't sound right. Or I shouldn't say it that way. Play it for other people. Dial that in. Because there's nothing more powerful than a, a properly rehearsed and tested presentation. It'll do amazing things for your business. 
Agree. If they can do that, and it's painful to watch a video of yourself for some people who've never done it before, but you need to do it on a regular basis to make sure that a lot of these blunders or old bad habits haven't crept in. But the other thing, too, if you're the type of person that's given the same presentation 10 times a day, you've got it down pat. That's great. But let me ask you this question. When you're delivering that presentation for the hundredth time, are you singing the song or are you singing the words? Because if you're just going through the motions, if you're on autopilot, if your audience, it's the first time they've heard it, they're going to sense you droning on. They're going to sense no passion. They're going to sense that your heart's not in it. That's the flip side of what we're talking about, but that could be a major mistake many people are making. Yep, yep. There you go. Well, we've gone a little bit over on time, but I want to... Let's do this blunder thing really quick here. Cue up the Homer. What do you say? Don't, don't, don't! There it is. <laughs> There's Homer. So this one is you and I speaking yeah. to a travel agent association in Chicago. Chicago's been all the rage today. Yeah. yeah, where I'm going next. One of the things you have to understand if there's other speakers, you need to know what their topic is, what their styles is, what jokes they're going to use. It's probably good for you to sit in the audience and listen to what they're doing, the emotions of the audience, get to know the audience, instead of just showing up and speaking. Because if you just show up and speak and tell a joke that somebody else told before, no one's going to laugh. I've made that blunder. That's a whole other blunder. Or their topic might be so serious or so way off course or that might contradict you. You need to know that before you get up and speak. So this is what happened. Show up and... Luckily, we had heard before us the listened a little bit to that speaker, and the speaker was talking about the problems of child prostitution in the hotels in Chicago. Who knew we didn't know that, but that just sucked the life out of the room. It was one of those topics that's so serious, so demoralizing, so demeaning that the whole audience was just, I would say, sitting there gawking with their eyes open. I mean, who knew? Who knew? It was one of those topics. And I'm next, Mr. Persuasion, Mr. Influence, Mr. Energy, Mr. Motivation. <laughs> I'm next to speak. So what we ask you is, what do you think would be the best way to handle that? Uh, well, my preference would be we should have called the people up, had a look at the agenda and see what people are speaking on and requested a different slot. <laughs> yeah, that would be the best case. We should have known ahead of time that slot was there. But luckily... I didn't just show up and speak in my slot. Luckily, we knew that was coming. We should have found out ahead of time and tried to rearrange things or found out ahead of time if there was no other option, at least how do we handle that. Luckily, uh, we were able to, to get there and uh, have people stand up, take a little break, and acknowledge, okay, that's a serious topic. We're switching gears now. This is what we're going to do. And then slowly build up the energy, slowly build up the humor to grab the audience. Best case would have been to know ahead of time to move slots what we did still tended to work. It took a little time to get things going, take a break. Hey, it was a serious topic. Let's shift gears so mentally the audience can do that. Yeah, you acknowledged that, wow, that was some serious stuff we all heard. Let's stand up, stretch out, grab a drink, and you know, let's, let's kind of get on with our day and, and how we can build our business. The fact that you were aware of that heavy-natured topic and acknowledged it and gave people kind of a chance to move around physically and, and reset mentally was the best he could have done in the circumstances, I think. Yeah, we handled it okay, but you said the blunder is we should have known ahead of time who's speaking, what are the topics, what are their styles, and switch it around if we could. Because yep. even time slots, morning slots are better than evening slots. Right after lunch 
is probably better than right before lunch if people are really hungry, but then sometimes when they're really full. So it depends on the audience, time of day, all those things come into play as far as when is the best time to speak and who's speaking before you and who's speaking after you. Yeah, you get that 10 a.m. slot if you can help it. But, well, yeah, that, that's all very applicable to people who speak and present to groups. So do the recon in advance, and if that's not available to you, you should put somebody in the audience, if not yourself, so that you know what's been talked about. You can adjust your presentation accordingly. It's all about the preparation. And that's true if you're going to a sales presentation one-on-one. Know where your competition. Are they before, are they after you, when they're coming in? Try to find out as much as you can. Yep. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, we've gone a little bit over today, so we're going to sign it off. We're going to be back next week with more on presentation skills. Send us your feedback to maximizeyourinfluence at gmail.com as usual. And we appreciate you listening. See you next week.